Well, with that, I am going to share out and uh, kick us off today. And we'll do text readability. And I will share um, uh, the lovely PDF. Because we are here today on this lovely Tuesday to jump into Antioedipus 4.5, the second positive task of schizoanalysis. We have uh, taken our time getting through the last two sections. Um, the first negative task, uh, the, second, the first positive task, and now the second positive task. Um, it's a journey, um, and there is a lot to say, and I'm going to give a really shitty summary uh, because it's important as we move forward um, when we talk about um, what the second positive task is because it is very, this one is deeply important and also uh, complicated in its own way. So to sort of jump back and feel free, anyone who wants to correct me, you are more than welcome. The first uh, destructive task, the first negative task of schizoanalysis is breaking down general narratives, representations, uh, doing away with them, not necessarily destroying them for anyone, but uh, breaking them down. Because the second thing you do, the first positive task, is to actually take a look at where the desiring machines are, how they're connected, and where they come from, um, and what they produce. Um, these two steps are incredibly important. They also are a weird movement from the molar of representation into the molecular of desiring machines. And now we need to get back into how these things might work and how these things can kind of play in the social space and how they may have implications outwards and now what the second positive task might be. That's my miniature, shitty, probably too simplified version to bring us up to speed. Anyone want to add to that or tell me why I'm wrong? That sounds right to me. I mean, the, the first negative task, right, is like they admit psychoanalysis is correct, that we discover things by representation, right? Uh, which then becomes the condition for their destruction. I, I like this sentence just from the, just 322, right, when they kick it off on 4.4. The first positive task consists of discovering in a subject the nature, formation, or the functioning of his desired machines, independently of any interpretations, right? Just like you said, right, now that you've kind of cleared the space of the representations, you can start to actually work with why things are functioning the way they are. With that, uh, I will uh, dive on in. Oh, Ash, did you have something? Please. Or did you? You were muting yourself. Okay. Well, then I'll dive right in and we'll jump into the second positive task. Um, from here out, as I've said the last uh, two sections, um, more so than anywhere else in the book, please do write down notes as you're having trouble or if a thing doesn't make sense. This uh, section, uh, took us, uh, nine readings to get through. And I do not foresee that ever shrinking significantly. This is where all of it comes together. If you do not get a sentence, I may say, we'll go back and listen to our recording on this. If it is a thing that I think can be gotten through just, you know, sort of rereading earlier parts and all of that, but don't hesitate to ask because if you are not getting things, um, uh, as a problem, we want to be here to help. So uh, off I go, and let's get into 
the second positive task. We cannot, however, allow the difference in regime to make us forget the identity in nature. There are fundamentally two poles, but we would not be satisfied if we had to present them merely as the duality of the molar formations and the molecular formations, since there is not one molecular formation that is not by itself an investment of a molar formation. There is no there are no desiring machines that exist outside the social machines that they form on a large scale, and no social machines without the desiring machines that inhabit them on a small scale. Nor is there any molecular chain that does not intercept and reproduce whole blocks of molar code or axiomatic, nor any such blocks that do not contain or seal off fragments of molecular chain. A sequence of desire is extended by a social series, or a social machine contains desiring part machine parts within its workings. The desiring micromultiplicities are no less collective than the large social aggregates. They are strictly inseparable and constitute one and the same process of production. From this point of view, the duality of the poles passes less between the molar and the molecular than to the interior of the molar social investments, since in any case, molecular formations are such investments. That is why our terminology concerning the two poles has necessarily varied. At times, we contrasted the molar and the molecular as the paranoiac, signifying and structured lines of integration, and the schizophrenic, machinic, and dispersed lines of escape, or, again, as the staking out of the perverse re-territorializations, and as the movement of the schizophrenic deterritorializations. At other times, on the contrary, we contrasted them as the two major types of equally social investments, the one sedentary and bi-univocalizing, and of a reactionary or fascist tendency, and the other nomadic and polyvocal, and of a revolutionary tendency. In fact, in the schizoid declaration, I am of a race inferior for all eternity. I am a beast, a black. We are all German Jews. The historico-social field is no less invested than in the paranoiac formula. I am one of your kind from the same place as you. I am a pure Aryan of a superior race for all time. God, there's a lot said here. The last bit, that's from... That's not Schreber, is it? Mm. Or is it still Rimbaud? I think it's Rimbaud, uh, the I am beast of black uh, is yeah. the earlier phrasing. And then I That's think, um, yeah, and then the second half is also from that because it's, uh, I believe, the same piece. Um, I mean, well, let's actually just talk about that section. The idea of the schizoid who claims these things, they they are at any point, these things. There is a reality around identity that we kind of aren't anything and so it's a question of what are we, where do we fit in? And this schizoid declaration of um, I am the inferior, let's say I, me, uh, Brooks, a cis white male from middle America. I go about screaming, I am a race inferior for eternity. I'm a beast of black. Um, I'm a German Jew. That field that produces that reality for me is no less invested than in the paranoiac formula, which is the opposition, which is more common from someone like me. I am one of your kind from the same place as you. I'm a pure Aryan of a superior race for all time. They're equally invested. They're equally socially invested and historically, uh, social historical 
investments in that field. Um, it's one of the underlying things that they want us to really, as they've talked about, and it's, um, I would really encourage if you're having trouble with this idea to go back and read the whole and its parts, which I consider to be one of the better treaties on this concept. And it's very difficult to grasp. Um, so don't feel bad. Um, but it is the idea that there is no such thing as a whole and the parts that it is a whole and its parts and that they are one and the same, that there is a multiplicity within the singular and a singular in the multiplicity, the way that a cloud exists. And, uh, you know, you wouldn't say, uh, talk about the droplet, there's droplets, but you also wouldn't say it's only the droplets. You'd say there's the cloud. Well, your cloud is nothing without the droplets. This back and forth kind of never stops. The, the whole in its parts, the reality of what these molecular molar things are, it, this is not talking about anything as there being a bifurcating line. And over here is the molecular shit, and over here is the molar shit. That's not what we're doing. We're talking about the sum of everything, the all, and breaking it down, but we're talking about the parts as part of the whole, and the whole as a sum of the parts. And this is very much what they're getting into here. They're talking about a little bit more of the productive side of the organization they've talked about, uh, the two poles, the molar molecular, the paranoiac schizo, um, whatever it may be, these various investments. But there is no social without the machines that are invested. And there is no machines without the social to invest in. That's how I, I read this part. And some of the phrasing in here is just amazing. Uh, but it's just, it's a lot at once. And we can kind of go through it if we need to. Jack, is that a, just a general summation there? Yeah, I think I see where you're coming from. Trying to simplify because it's not an easy, um, it's not an easy section. You know, it's not too bad, right? Because it's just an extension of what we've seen that um, the schizophrenic and the paranoiac, however that's, however they're going to describe that, are co-invested in the same way the molar and the molecular are. So the two regimes invest in each other. Likewise, the, you know, another way of saying it is what this. What, what the socius conditions and what the BWO conditions, right? Those things are mutually um, co-instantive and mutually informing. Because yes. I think this is basically the delirium, right? Is the fact that, like, the fact that um, as much as something's bionivicalizing, there's also the schizophrenic aspect, right? Which doesn't, which simply doesn't play that. <laughs> And yet they co-invest each other. Well, and it's, and it's that last line I really like because we tend to have a, um, and again, I'm going to talk through like an emotional response to a thing, but I think there is an intuitively um, more of a reality given to someone who claims that they are pure Aryan, that the whites are the supreme race or the blacks are the supreme race, that the things that they're into this social historical field they're in invested in is more realistic, is more real than say me saying I am a German Jew or a black. And I think that's their point here is these historical historic fields are no less invested than in the paranoiac formula. This, this, these things are all invested 
in the historical social realities. The, all of these things are. Um, we they talk about this pretty cleanly. The um, the other nomadic and polyvocal and a revolutionary tendency. The, the, the phrasing they have here. At times, we contrasted the molar and molecular as the paranoiac, the structured lines of integration, and then the schizophrenic, machinic, and dispersed lines of escape. Or maybe we staked out the perverse re-territorializations, and as the movement of the schizophrenic deterritorializations. At other times, on the contrary, we said they were two types of equally social investments, one sedentary and by univocalizing of a reactionary, the other nomadic and polyvocal of a revolutionary. Like this, these two sides they've talked about, but they're not talking about like one being better or more real than the other. They're like, they're, they're trying to sort of talk about ultimately that all of these things possible all of these oscillations equally move in the same way and operate the same way because again we're talking about a generalized production here um and because it's machinic we're not talking about anything that's transcendent at all we're talking about a materialist view of why people believe what they believe and ultimately they are producing they they do different they produce different shit someone who screams i'm a beast of black and takes a minoritarian position, I would say is, is better for us than someone who screams they're a superior race. But ultimately, they're just as invested uh, in their own way. And that's the thing to kind of get through here. That it, to me, um, the desiring micro-multiplicities are no less collective than the large social aggregates. They're strictly inseparable and constitute one and the same process of production. Right, because I, I think I think that's largely the trick here, right? Is that the same conditions for art for Arto for Rimbaud as a Freudian slip for you. Mm -hmm. The same conditions for Rimbaud to say I am a beast of black. It's the same you know, it's in the same under the same conditions that enable I am one of your kind. I am a pure Aryan, right? Like that's that's the move, is we are all German Jews is under the same mutual investments as I am a Purian. Yes, at everything, everything is abutted up and connected machinically to every other piece. That's it. This is everything is is this. Everything produces. Everything works these ways. There is no. Um, there's no difference in nature between the two regimes, which is ultimately what this paragraph is again driving back at, that we don't want to get to this weird point of, um, well, uh, the molar works this way and the molecular works this way. It's like, no, it's, uh, it's, it's one huge thing. We're just talking about general ways that they operate at these different levels, but they are one and the same. This is how these things work. And they're made up of these same pieces. Again, the cloud example is the one I like to use, but you can use any machine. A car, for example, you, a car is very much the sum of its parts. Feel free to take any part out and tell me if it works still. Um, but you also, the, the pieces inside of the car, they're connected to the entire car. So you have a singular piece, sure you can look at it, but it's really at its best when it's part of the machine and it's only really doing the thing it does. A carburetor doesn't carburate. An engine doesn't do its thing unless it's part of that larger machine. Uh, you have the pieces, sure, 
but they need to be part of it in order to work and the whole thing needs the pieces and vice versa. Yeah, to go back to what you said about difference, right? The difference in the regimes does not, it's not uh, annulling, right? Because I, I think to your point, that's one of the big things here is, right? So we've done this destructive, to, to make it procedural, we've done this destructive task, you know, we've um, destroyed the representation, now we're doing the positive task and we're sort of unfurling uh, the assemblage, right? We're trying to figure out what the unconscious is doing in these instances, in these um, gatherings. And that's going to be really critical, I think, here, because now what they're, you know, they're not starting out by giving us the, the what the second task is. They're starting out, I think, making it clear that what you, you can't change the molecular or the molar without affecting the other, right? That these two things, um, because they're co-informative, co-instantiating, right? Because they comprise the unconscious, whatever's going on in them, right? It's, it it co-extends. Yes. Uh, they will continue that in the next uh, paragraph, which I think I should move to. Any questions on set, on wording here? Any comments, please? Uh, anyone should feel free to jump in. Any wonders of what's what we're reading? Um, I'm a, again, I'm streaming. If you want to take a look, I'm streaming the uh, text. If you want to just read and take a second, feel free. Um, I will take a moment and happily let you... Uh, I just want to expand on that point real quick um, before I lose this. I think oh, yeah. part of the reason they're starting out with this qualification is because they just got they just got done going through why is capital as associates more repressive than the other two, and there's a few reasons why. I think the one that's really important for this paragraph is that basically what happens right is in the first two socii, the molar and molecular are very close together. What happens with capital is they become very distant, right? And that has implications for the molar molecular, that has implications for the Soceus and the BWO. And at that level, right, that means any kind of, you know, any any in, any interest in creating an investment, right, has to deal with that problem, this new distance, because effectively what happens, right, is capital is able to establish the sum. This absolute limit, I believe it's the absolute limit of the BWL, right? That's going to be huge because that means the absolute limit is in large part the molecular, which has a newfound greater distance than in previous um, SOCI, right? Yes. Love that. Had to get that out before I lost it. Okay, no, now somebody else go. like that a lot, actually. I like that a lot. Uh, does anyone else have a thing, please? Okay. All right, I'll wander on to the next paragraph, which continues much of the same point, but makes a few things more explicit. From the viewpoint of the unconscious libidinal investment. I need to go clean, close my window. I'm sure, I don't know if you're hearing someone's cutting metal outside. One moment. I always thought you were into woodworking. 
goddamn room's falling apart. What the fuck? All right. Did you say metal cutting? I was yeah, thought you someone, were woodworking. No, I don't know who. Someone's outside cutting their drain pipes and uh, on their house, and I don't. I don't know. It's like someone's stealing them, except it's the owner, so I know they're not. But still, insane. Um, I'm gonna go ahead and start that paragraph over, and we'll get going. <clears throat> From the viewpoint of the unconscious libidinal investment, all the oscillations from one formula to the other are possible. How, how can this be? How can the schizophrenic escape, with its molecular dispersion, form an investment that is as strong and determined as the other? And why are there two types of social investment that correspond to the two poles? Well, the answer is that everywhere there exists the molecular and the molar, their disjunction is a relation of included disjunction, which varies only according to the two directions of subordination, according as the molecular phenomenon are subordinated to the large aggregates or, on the contrary, subordinate them to themselves. At one of the poles, the large aggregates, the large forms of gregariousness, do not prevent the flight that carries them along and they oppose to it the paranoiac investment only as an escape in advance of the escape. But at the other pole, the schizophrenic escape itself does not merely consist in withdrawing from the social and living on the fringe. It causes the social to take flight through the multiplicity of holes that eat away at it and penetrate it, always coupled directly to it, everywhere setting the molecular charges that will explode what must explode, make fall what must fall, make escape what must escape, at each point ensuring the conversion of schizophrenia as a process into an effectively revolutionary force. For what is the schizo if not, first of all, the one who can no longer bear all that? Money, the stock market, death forces, Najinsky said, vowels, morals, homelands, religions, and private certitudes. There's a whole world of difference between the schizo and the revolutionary, the difference between the one who escapes and the one who knows how to make what he is escaping escape, collapsing a filthy drainage pipe, causing a deluge to break loose, liberating a flow, resecting a skiz. The schizo is not revolutionary, but the schizophrenic process, in terms of which the schizo is merely the interruption or the continuation of the void, is the potential for revolution. To those who say that escaping is not courageous, we answer, what is not escape and social investment at the same time? The choice is between one of two poles, the paranoiac counterscape that motivates all the conformist, reactionary, and fascizing investments, and the schizophrenic escape, convertible into a revolutionary investment. Maurice Blanchot speaks admirably of this revolutionary escape, this fall, that must be thought and carried out as the most positive of events. What is this escape? The word is poorly chosen to please. Courage consists, however, in agreeing to flee rather than live tranquilly and hypocritically in false refuges. Values, morals, homelands, religions, and these private certitudes that our vanity and our complacency bestow generously on us have as many deceptive sojourns as the world arranges for those who think they are standing straight and at ease among stable things. They know nothing of this immense flight that transports them ignorant 
of themselves in the monotonous buzzing of their ever-quickening steps that lead them impersonally in a great immobile movement. An escape in advance of the escape. Consider the example of one of these men who, having had the revelation of the mysterious drift, is no longer able to stand living in false pretenses of residence. First, he tries to take this movement as his own, but he would personally like to withdraw. He lives on the fringe, but perhaps that is what the fall is, that it can no longer be a personal destiny, but the common lot. In this regard, the first thesis of schizoanalysis is this. Every investment is social, and in any case, bears upon a socio-historical field. Uh, we are going to spend seven hours on this. Um, this is, fuck, God damn, I forgot, like, so many of these paragraphs hit me so differently every time I read them. Um, this is so good. This is so fucking good. Um, I want to just... Uh, I'm a huge fan of this one. This one's amazing. I'm going to start with, um, if anyone's come here from uh, various online personalities who have done readings or talked about AO, if anyone has ever said to you, uh, Deleuze and Guattari just want us to become schizos, they do not. That person is shitty and didn't read the book. They explicitly say here, uh, that is not the point. This is why I get angry when people talk about the hero of the schizo and they valorize um, what is actually a pretty significant mental condition and one that we should be uh, very kind towards. Um, the reality is it's the process. The schizo themselves are not revolutionary, but the schizophrenic process in terms of which the schizo is the interruption or the continuation in the void is the potential for revolution. There is so much to break down in this paragraph um, to get to that point. Um, before I start rambling, is there anyone who has a particular question on any of these sentences or the wording? Uh, and if not, we'll just literally be taking it kind of from mostly the top of this idea. So it's a lot to take in I guess here. Uh, the most confusing part to me and probably the most important that I can think of is um, Vertigo. Um, The one who knows how to make what he is escaping escape. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, uh, and that's really good Blanche show. I mean, that's really good Blanche show. Um, to answer, we will answer that before we're done here. If I don't answer it satisfactorily before we move on, yell at me, please, uh, Shisey, please. Uh, because it is, it is deeply important that I communicate this right, and I... I want to make sure I've even got a grasp of it, so feel free to beat up on my idea of it because this is where this is, I think, super fun um, and really interesting because underneath all of this, we talk about the process of how we have ideas. Let's talk about the process of how you have ideas. AO is about that. Let's talk about the fascism within. AO at large is about understanding that there is that demand towards representation and the demand towards these things this section is very much about how we actually have, all of us, deep investments in the social fields. In fact, uh, they say very cleanly, the first thesis of schizoanalysis is this, every investment is social, and in any case, bears upon a social historical field. And as they just fed in the previous paragraph, all of our desiring machines are invested in something. So 
there is no breaking free of the social and being like, oh, I'm free. I get to run and go do my own thing. I have separated myself. Neo pulling the thing out and he's no longer part of the matrix and he's able to be free. Uh, no, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about escaping in a different way because how meaning is generated at the individual levels, a really interesting thing. And this is why they love the schizo. This is why they uh, attach to the schizophrenic process because a schizo doesn't care whether the things they put together make sense. Uh, if I take two sentences that may seem absurd, I can find ways to make them make sense. Um, um, I, uh, fuck, how do I put it? I have a Mr. Potato Head my son made on my desk right now. Uh, it's Pirate Head Potato Man. Um, it's a potato man, has a pirate outfit and a tentacle arm. Um, this thing exists in a very strange place. Why did my son pick those things? Why did he choose and put those things together? He put them together into a full-on potato head. Now, this setup and thing, he has a name for it. He has developed and put together why these go together and why they work and why they make sense to him. If I were to show these two, um, we'll say someone, I won't name anyone, someone in my family who may have no imagination whatsoever, they might go, why, the, why does he have a tentacle arm? That doesn't make any sense. Because the paranoiac is about saying what things are. And Mr. Potato Head, despite being a potato, is a man with man arms, man eyes, man ears, man head, man tongue, man mouth, not, te not tentacle. But my son is able to go, oh wait, tentacle's cool. And he just puts it together. There's a difference between an exclusive and an inclusive disjunction here that is brought up. And feel free to jump in anytime, Jack, because you know this is your jam uh, as much as mine. The way that disjunctions happen is when we put two ideas together that don't seem to make sense. Uh, if we use an exclusive disjunction, we force things together that do. Oh, man, man, woman, man, penis, woman, vagina, these things. Oh, this is... This is how the representation works. It places things in a very particular order. But what if we were to shift it up? What if it's uh, man fur, uh, woman tentacle? It, these, these things, a schizophrenic may ramble. Um, there's some amazing um, videos about kind of what it's schizophrenics when they talk. We have a few on the server who, who suffer from this, and it's, uh, there's a reason we don't. Uh, we force everyone to treat them with kid gloves because they make connections. We wouldn't because everything we have to put in order makes sense. Everyone here, um, I mean, as far as I know, when we talk, we're utilizing the same general signification, the same social order. You may not be from the same country. You may not all be Americans. That yeah, doesn't really matter. We're able to talk and, you know, things generally make sense. But if I were to just start saying, tentacle potato, stream deck cloud, camera switch, these, these are things I'm seeing in front of me, but you don't have any signification or story behind them. It's just random bullshit. This is the schizo process. The ability for us to take a look at the world and see things a little differently and utilize this process and to put things in a different order, to have a, instead of a exclusive disjunction, the ability for us to have an inclusive disjunction and start actually putting shit together that didn't go before and actually having a secondary sense or new meaning that comes out of this. Suddenly, that's a very odd thing for us to play with. 
it's a very interesting thing. It's actually what art does. It's what philosophers do. It's what science is, does. They put things in new orders, and then they give us a new sense of meaning around them. So, underneath it all, this is where we exist. We have our investments that are socio-historical. We're deeply invested in them, but just by existing and by our machines existing. And as we're given new ideas or new thoughts, we're already kind of invested in a bunch of shit, and so we kind of judge against that. And those things actually lay out the troughs that meaning is allowed to exist within. Not tentacle potato head, um, or even Ms. Potato Woman, or transgender potato man, I suppose, if you were Fox News. Um, but it's Mr. Potato Head to some. And there's rules around that, and there's a setup. This reactionary, paranoiac stance sits in opposition to the revolutionary, which is not necessarily directly schizo. Schizos just are putting together whatever pieces they see. This is, that's good. But a revolutionary, to the question earlier, Shaisi, the revolutionary creates an escape where they break out of this, but ideally, their best version is where they create an escape that leaves a hole open behind them or even a secondary machine that allows the, the things behind them to continue to escape further. Um, this machine, this revolutionary potential, uh, think of it as creating a new, a, new, a new way of existence that other people are able to see and able to move with. Uh, proper revolutionary art uh, inspires, creates escape behind it by putting things in an order they weren't in before or that might be subterfuge for the current order of things. Um, there's a internet meme of a mother and her uh, son. It's one of my favorites uh, because it plays on the joke of the kid seeing and becoming gay, but it's uh, two men kissing. What's that, mommy? And she goes, don't look. And it cuts back to the kid and he's dressed in like these great glasses. He goes, too late, mother. I have seen everything. It's a great meme. Um, that is actually what they're talking about though, that it is the nature of the new order of things that breaks other people's meanings, which creates revolutionary intent in them as a machine, because it's about the investment, what we're invested in and how we're set up and a proper revolutionary utilizes schizo production and creates machines that allow other people to attach and also escape. This is the sort of set up here because there's basically as this is the line I, I highlighted here uh, to those who say that escaping is not courageous. We answer what is not escape and social investment at the same time. Uh, the phrasing is weird there. And it's a translation thing to sort of restate that you, you don't think escaping is great, but wait, 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 but escape and social escape and social investment at the same time is always what escape is. That's the nature of revolutionary. The choice is between one of two poles, the paranoiac counter-escape that motivates all the conformist reactionizing, reactionary and fascizing investments, which we already have, and the schizophrenic escape convertible into revolutionary investment. Because remember, all desiring machines are necessarily invested in things. Like, there's no free desiring machines who are like sitting over here waiting. Oh, we just need to build a thing that'll attach to them. It's like, no, it, 
we everything is desiring machines and investments. This is this is where we are. So we need to build things that actually are secondary investments, new investments that allow the desiring machines to attach because they're their own machines. And then that escape creates and continues to move forward. This is the Blanchard line. This is the idea that it's about these sort of uh, revolutionary moments that actually allow us to create escapes for not just other people, but other machines. That is a long ramble. Yeah, I'm going to go with that. Jack, thoughts? I mean, I guess where I'd start with it is it's a question of how do we understand the unconscious, right? And the answer is really novel because they they basically say, right, the the unconscious as molecular and molar is under it's basically under the conditions, I think, of uh, the syllogisms, right? Their disjunction is a relation of includus disjunction, which varies only according to the two directions of subordination. So, right, I mean, at a very basic level, I think they're just starting off with um, what, so, so we just talked about how do these two things relate? What's the condition for that? It's the included disjunction, and they start off with an and statement prior. So at that level, right, they're implying, I think, um, the connective synthesis, right? Because they're part of the implication here is, and I, I think they've brought this up in this chapter. I know it's coming up more as we go. How does the unconscious produce itself, right? The auto-production, the autopoiesis. This first bit, I think, is really where they're trying to establish a lot of that, is that, you know, under these conditions, right, basically the three syntheses, the unconscious does produce itself. And this is, you say that in doing so, the molar and molecular are produced as such, right? So if the second task is going to work with those two things, and we just talked about why you can't do something to one without affecting the other, right? We're starting to unfurl why it is that you can't do one, can't do something to one without the other. Because not just because they're co-invested, but because they because they exist under these conditions, right? Because they're in a connective synthesis, because they're in a relation, because they exist through a distribution, right? Because they're in an inclusive disjunction. Yeah, I, the the leaving a machine behind, the the escape that causes escape. Um, an example I've used before and I kind of like is actually the ending of Spartacus. Um, it's not the whole movie, which has some deeply reactionary realities to it, but uh, the end of the film, uh, the, they're trying to figure out the Romans come, they're ready to murder a bunch of people, and they're like, we want to execute which one of you is Spartacus, we'll only kill him, blah, blah. And there's this moment where um, one man just goes, oh, I'm Spartacus, and he's not. Like Spartacus stands up, I'm Spartacus. And then someone else goes, I'm Spartacus. Uh, which is weird. He's fucking not Spartacus. This is a this is a break from the standard, a break from the conformist. But what he's doing is he has created room. And that room he's created is actually revolutionary potential because immediately the next person says it. And then the next, and then the next, and the next. Giving room for everyone to be able to claim that they are this, which enables 
actually the you know ultimately the freedom and and blah 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 uh, but it's it's about just that little thing that allows secondary escapes that allows playing against the conformant the conformity the the elements of that um it's it's tough um the Blanchot talks about it the escape um the word is poorly chosen to please courage consists however in agreeing to flee rather than live tranquilly and hypocritically in false refuges values morals homelands religions and these private certitudes that our vanity and our complacency bestow generally on us and have as many deceptive sojourns as the world arranges for those who think they are standing straight and at ease among stable things um the reactionary nature of the vast majority of people in our politics i was watching a stream where people were talking how we become too multicultural and they wanted to go back to uh England in the you know they using stats of like the early 1900s and the 1800s and it's they the the story they've built is that that wasn't a multicultural England but anyone who knows their history knows that it was actually probably even more multicultural than now just not explicitly so um they just didn't allow the the people of non-white descent to live in England but England at large, the machine that was England, was deeply multicultural and incredibly fragile based on all of that. And then necessitated the work of basically a mass army. And the majority of the machine that was the UK at the time was actually non-white. And so it wasn't even multicultural. Whites were the minority by a wide goddamn margin. Still really are if you think about it in that way. But they don't. Their story, the thing that they've taught themselves, the... The, the certitude, the values, morals, homeland, religion, and private certitudes that vanity and complacency bestow generally, generously on us have as many deceptive sojourns as the world arranges for those who think they are standing straight and at ease among stable things. They know nothing of this immense flight that transports them ignorant of themselves in the monotonous buzzing of their ever-quickening steps that lead them impersonally in a great immobile movement. Um, which is a fantastic description of the general reactionary mentality. Um, a mobile movement. I love that. God, she, Blanchot is great. Um, an escape in advance of the escape. Uh, one of these men, having had the revelation of the mysterious drift, is no longer able to stand living in false pretenses of residence. First, he tries to take this movement as his own. He would like to personally withdraw. He lives on the fringe. But perhaps that is what the fall is, that it can no longer be a personal destiny, but the common lot. Um, really amazing phrasing. It's a necessity that it's always ultimately social, that there is no such thing as uh, heading off and being a hermit, Kaczynski style. Did any of that come close to answering your question, Shaisi? If not, let's please discuss. I'd love to. Yeah, I think so. Um, more so the part earlier about like not necessarily pushing others or even leading them, but just creating the opening through which others can can follow or also move. Yeah, it's 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 an interesting place to be because you're 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 talking about and he uses the term in here the counter actualization, which is an interesting phrasing for Deleuze to use when he's talking about uh, where, where was that. Um, do, 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 do. It's a little bit further up. Reactionary. I know it was in here. 
Um, the par paranoiac counter escape that motivates all the conformist reactionary fascizing investments and the schizophrenic escape convertible into revolutionary investment. Um, in logic of sense, Deleuze puts a great deal of weight into a thing called a counteractualization, which um, having paranoia counter-escape and then revolutionary counter um, counteractualization could be an interesting juxtaposition. The counteractualization, as he talks about it in there, is very much along these lines that uh, almost, and again, this is me oversimplifying, so feel free to yell at me as much as you want, um, Generally speaking, um, the meaning that we have bestowed on us, we actually have a unique ability because of how this how, how sense is generated to pervert it, to play with it, to shift it and to edit it and to change what meaning is and how meaning plays to rearrange the meaning of objects, if not the destiny of them. Um, I can't change all the machines in the world, but I can play on how meaning is generated from them and how people interpret them. And this is an exceptional power. I think as opposing this, the um, paranoiac counter-escape, we might call that the escape. The paranoiac counter-escape is very much a fight between wanting to hyper-actualize, to concretize. This is what things are. This is what the values, the morals, the homeland, the religion, the private certitudes that allow us to believe we aren't in a, a deep flux of change literally at all times. Um, the idea that, oh, Things used to be so much more stable, they're so much worse now, is part of that. Um, it's one of my many reasons I make my constant joke that everyone ultimately is reactionary. Um, the Underneath it all, we can choose how these meaning bits come out, and that's the play with the schizo. That's the underlying, because at the base, uh, every investment, every investment is social, and in any case bears upon that socio-historical field. Got something, Jack? Hmm. Well, I mean, if you... it's interesting with logic of sense because he'll lean more heavily on perversion there, but here the perverse is associated with the paranoiac uh, and the re-territorialization, right? Yes. And in some ways that is consistent. In other ways, it raises a whole new slew of questions, right? Which is going to get at the molecular, I think. Um, part part of how I'm reading this right is so I mean the easy thing to say is right this is a very Nietzschean paragraph to go into like the group and then to go into like how to escape the group right in this sense though I think it's I mean it's very in line with Zarathustra to me in the sense that it's kind of like it's saying uh this might, this might also be an oversimplification, but it's kind of like saying, how do you facilitate, I don't want to say how do you facilitate, how can that which, com which is comprising the group be enabled to escape the group, right? Because it's trying to, I think, move that question. Because right, if you remember Zarathustra, it opens up with him coming down the mountain, going into the people and that, right? And he's trying to tell them something. He ends up telling them a lot of things. Uh, apparently, he had a very long notepad, yellow legal pad, probably knowing, knowing how these things go. But, anyways, 
I think that's kind of what they're doing here because when they write at one of the poles, the large aggregates, the large form of gregariousness do not prevent the flight that carries them along. And they oppose it to the paranoiac investment only as an escape in advance of the escape quoted. Part of what I'm thinking here is they're talking about the paranoiac, I think, and in some level the molar, right? I think that that's tied in some ways to the lines of pressure we saw in the previous section. And I think that speaks to the schizophrenic lines as well. Because if we move that now into like the reactionary versus revolutionary investments, this to me is actually a very Freudian point. Uh, it's the same point they make in the previous chapter, right? How can this tension be released? And in that sense, I think this is kind of the interesting thing, right? Is like for a while the, the group, the herd problem a lot is about, and I'm sure you guys have heard this, right? It's about finding an individual. Right, discovering individuality a lot. Um, but that's not where Deleuze and Guadagnat at when they're writing, right? They come back with something different, which is, it's not about me escaping as an individual. It's about opening up an escape for the unconscious and its production, right? Because in doing that, I think the kind of deterritorialization they're talking about here, right? It's going to effectively change the unconscious and its self-production. Which means yeah, well, you, it's no, it's, it's the line drastically changed, right? <laughs> it, it's the Go line. The, the schizophrenic escape itself does not merely consist in withdrawing from the social and living on the fringe. It causes the social to take flight through the multiplicity of holes that eat away at it and penetrate it, always coupled directly to it everywhere, setting the molecular charges that will explode what must explode, make fall what must fall, make escape what must escape, at each point ensuring the conversion of schizophrenia as a process into an effectively revolutionary force. Right. And this is, this is I think, a large part of it, too, is like where they're pointing at Nijinsky and Blanchot, uh, you know, on some level, Nietzsche's dealing with this too, right? These kind of movements and that try to seek justification through some value. Uh, well, I'm just going to focus on values because that's the easy one. But, you know, it's the same thing with morality, right? There's something usually transcendent, right? And right there, you're at the first paralogism and probably the second one too, right? Because you're looking for something beyond all this that can justify it. And in that, you know, you're kind of making a, you're, you're taking a major risk that you're probably not going to create this kind of escape, especially because for the escape to happen, as they're talking about it, that, that very value, moral, uh, what have you, just like the individuality, is going to be completely different. And I think this is part of why they're they're talking about the paranoiac versus the schizophrenic um, in this manner, or the reactionaryism versus the revolutionaryism. Even though the ism's probably misleading there, but for, for lack of a better word, um, part of what I think they're talking about there is like part of what the paranoiac does, right? Is it it affects production? And I think it does pressurize it, and one of the effects of that. It's kind of similar to the death drive in the sense that it can break production. And that's not necessarily good or bad. 
but I think that speaks to the difference here because I think the escape, anticipating the escape, I think this we can see in Capital where there's this molar deterritorialization happening that does anticipate the molecular. And in doing so, right, it's it, this is one way of thinking about it. It's kind of a way of what conditions change and where that escape is going to take place because the kind of molar becomings that just get changed, right, that's not enough to create a revolutionary investment. That actually creates a reactionary investment. And in Let doing so, right, can create, I think, some further repression for the molecular. Go ahead. Uh yeah, and just to respond, uh, uh, Mr. Wolf, as it says, it sounds like schizophrenia is like creativity on steroids or Adderall. It's, no, 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 no. Uh, schizophrenia is a horrifying mental condition that is basically the ultra damaging of someone who has been forced to take uh, what might be creative uh, generalized desire and put it into things. They they specifically in here actually uh, call out Nijinsky. Um, uh, Vaslav Nijinsky as, uh, is a good example of this, and I think an example of what they mean when they say schizophrenia in relation to capital, um, named probably one of the greatest dancers of all time. Um, due to various circumstances, he ended up having to become kind of a manager of a ballet troupe. And he ended up spending most of his time not dancing anymore, uh, which he loved very, very, very much. And again, one of the best ever, apparently. Um, but instead, he began to manage all the time and this stress and the reality of this actually broke him to the point where he was diagnosed with schizophrenia. And he ended up spending 30 years in and out of mental asylums um, and never uh, danced again. Um, schizophrenia is a condition. The schizophrenic process uh, specifically is what they're looking at. And it is that of specifically an inclusive disjunction. It is the ability for people to hold multiple seemingly contradictory ideas or thoughts or elements in their head and actually find a way to synthesize meaning out of them uh, and sense out of them. Uh, the Zen Cohen's are a good example of this. There's a lot of things like that. They're, the process of schizophrenia is uh, very much something artists go through. Uh, I've gone through in my writing. Other people have. When we're creating something new, if you believe you want to create something new, um, that sort of is necessary. For them, as they're talking about it here, this the schizo, the process, uh, isn't just uh, connecting two things and then going. There's lots of people who do that, and um, they're hardly, hardly, hardly revolutionary. Instead, it's making sure that what you build or what you leave behind is a machine that uh, allows secondary or third-tier escapes of other people around them, or even just, not people, uh, other desiring machines to have new investments. Um, this is why artists are kind of the easy one to always continually kind of go back to because artists, whether it's music, uh, whether it's visual art, movies, the ability for us to be moved by a thing and have very unique uh, images thrown at us that touch us in different ways or cause us to have new thoughts that tend to be deeply inspirational to a lot of thinkers um, and all of us. I mean, I don't think I'm alone in having had such experiences. Artists are able to do this. Their argument, and they say this cleanly throughout the rest of their books, including very much in what is philosophy, um, th this is the nature of all the, you know, what they would call the actual creative uh, work, which they include science in, proper science, 
um, not science as like a cultural thing. Um, so it's a really interesting sort of thinking through that, but it's about the, the breaking and putting together of ideas that didn't go together. Oh, uh, I'm sure you meant it. That that's great that you meant it that way. Um, that you understood. And he says again, I meant schizophrenia in relation to capital, schizophrenic process. I'm just sensitive to the terminology because there's a lot of people online who um, say stupid things like Deleuze wants you to be schizo or think schizos are where. Like, I hate that shit a lot. If you know anyone who's actually been diagnosed um, and having to deal with that, it's it's a long road and it makes me angry. Um. Um, there we go. Uh, is there anything more in this that we can squeeze out? Any more questions? Any thoughts? Um, because we can move on to the next, which ultimately is continuing off of this first thesis that every investment is social and in any case bears upon a socio historical field. Um, and this goes back to kind of how deliriums work and how these things operate as well. But that's what they're going to be getting into here is how investments operate. Because again, we made the move of destroying representation, then understanding where desiring machines are connecting in the first positive task. And now we need to talk about where investments are forming because everything is an investment. Every desiring machine is invested and every social or social historical element is invested in, in some capacity. And that's what we're going to be getting into. I mean, one more thing we can, I think, focus on is in the supply and show quote, right? So we're we're trying to understand the difference between uh, the one who escapes and the one who knows how to make what he is escaping escape. So we start to see this coming out with Blanchot, right? Revolutionary escape. What is this escape? Word is cho poorly chosen to please. Courage consists, however, in agreeing to flee rather than live tranquilly and hypocritically in false refugees. Values, morals, homelands, religions, and these private certitudes that our vanity and complacency bestowed generously on us have as many deceptive sojourns as the world arranges for those who think they are standing straight in the ease of unstable things. So right there, like that deceptive sojourn, that seems to speak to me this to part of that paranoiac aspect. They know nothing of this immense flight that transports them, ignorant of themselves and the monotonous buzzing of their ever-quickening steps. They lead them impersonally in a great immobile event. The depersonalization, again, I think is one thing that we'll, we'll see again and again when we're talking about these kind of escapes. An escape in advance of the escape. Consider the example of these men who, having had the revelation of the mysterious drift, is no longer is no longer able to stand in the false pretenses of residence. First, he tries to make this movement as his own. He would like to personally withdraw. He lives on the fringe. I think this is still focusing a little bit more on the paranoia because then Blanchot goes on to say. But perhaps this is what the fall is, that it can no longer be a personal destiny, but the common lot. And I think that's kind of the interesting thing there, right, is at that level. Another way to say what I said earlier is that um, it's not about something escaping so much as it is about the unconscious having a, a, a release of itself, right? 
like this point about the common law versus a personal destiny, right? There's a difference between there's a difference between Zarathustra trying to escape versus the collection of what's at hand there and the way that that collective escape can be changed in its entire constitution, right? Let us recall the major traits of a molar formation or of a form of gregariousness, herd instinct. They affect a unification, a totalization of the molecular forces through a statistical accumulation, obeying the laws of large numbers. This unity can be the biological unity of a species or the structural unity of a socius, an organism, social or living, is composed as a whole, as a global or complete object. It is relation to this new order that the partial objects of a molecular order appear as a lack at the same time that the whole itself is said to be lacked by the partial objects. In this way, desire will be fused to lack. The myriad breaks flows that determine the positive dispersion in a molecular multiplicity are fitted over vacuoles or lack that perform this fusion in a statistical constellation of a molar order. Freud demonstrated clearly in this respect how one went from psychotic multiplicities of dispersion, founded on the breaks or schizes, to large vacuoles determined globally of the neurosis and castration type. The neurotic needs a global object in relation to which the partial objects can be determined as a lack and inversely. But on a more general level, the statistical transformation of molecular multiplicity into a molar constellation is what organizes lack on a large scale. Such an organization belongs essentially to the biological or social organism, species or socius. There is no society that does not arrange lack in its midst by variable means peculiar to it. These means are not the same, for example, by variable, uh, these means are not the same, for example, uh, in a despotic type of society or in a capitalist society where the market economy raises them to a degree of perfection unknown before capitalism. This welding of desire to lack is precisely what gives desire collective and personal ends, goals or intentions. Instead of desire taken in the real order of its production, which behaves as a molecular phenomenon devoid of any goal or intention. I have ways to explain this that are not super easy, but it's a whole thing. I mean, I, I kind of think of it in terms of like, in a sense, what is the molar, what is the molecular, right? Because we've already explained that they're intimately related, um, regard, and, and not even just regardless, but actually in, uh, in virtue of any distance, right? So the molar works through basically, I mean, this is actually kind of a Keynesian point as much as it is Nietzschean, but the molar works through unification, a totalization of molecular forces through statistical accumulation obeying the laws of large numbers. So, you know, in a sense, it's as simple as the way things add up and you can contrast to this with the Lucretius essay, right? The way things add up as opposed to the way things keep adding 
I think is part of the difference they're suggesting here. And in doing that, right, you get a kind of unity. This will be important because when we start talking about goals in that, right, so it's not that we can't have goals, but it's that uh, the unconscious and what it's doing doesn't really have goals, right? Desire doesn't actually have those things. It's only when desire is welded to lack that you can have collective and personal ends, goals or intentions. But in doing that, right, those are really kind of a product as opposed to the productive. And they're going to associate the productive more directly with the molecular there, right? Because the kind of unity and the kind of, um, shall we say, final product, if we want to switch from addition to multiplication, the kind of final product at hand, um, that's all going to depend more largely for them in this paragraph on the molecular multiplicity, right? Yeah, I my uh, my take on this phrasing, I've really liked a few bits of this because it tends to finally start really getting back to lack. It's a thing that, um, you know, Lacan's work in it and Zizek's work in it, lack has always been a really important thing to me to understand how it plays, uh, be it as like a manipulation of desire. But earlier and through this, they're kind of bringing it back to how lack is produced within the gregarious, within the molar, and how it sort of plays. And the phrasing here is really interesting. Um, when we talk about, uh, especially in capitalism, but you know, in general, we talk about the, the way that a, an entire idea can be purchased, um, or a thing can be gotten, or an idea exists. It necessarily has a lot of pieces with it. So let's talk about uh, talk about Instagram as a thing, which I can't even imagine what DNG would say about Instagram. But um, it in it exists uh, photos of very attractive people uh, who are having sex with each other, and it's very attractive sex. I'm very sure, um, and they're in exotic places, traveling the world with the world's best food. Now, if this existed on its own. There is parts of this as an emergent reality. Like, what is the machine that would have to make this? Well, at, generally, there's a lot of stuff that goes into that. A lot of desiring machines that connect that, oh, these things. And then those very lovely people drink a Coke. And the Coke is the thing I can buy. And it's part of this. It's, it's actually an important part of this because it's the thing I could purchase that's connected to all of these things. It's a gregarious large scale representation that matches part of this larger machine, but that's not how things work in the molar. The molar is actually fairly disconnected from actual partial objects. Even though we, we can take part in it, the reality is that very attractive couple spends a fortune on face tuning and makeup and they have to eat very particular bits of food. There's a the muscular guys, it's Mac from It's Always Sunny, had the best line when he got muscular. He said, it's really easy. Everyone should do it. All you need to do is have a studio, pay for the world's best personal trainer, stop eating all the food you want, work out eight hours a day for six months while being paid good money. And that's all it is. It's very simple. Everyone can do it. And it's poking fun at the idea that like, it's not just that someone is this thing or that you can just be this thing by buying this object. The buying the Coke, the successful house, 
these are things that can happen, but they, when they happen, they happen sort of emergently out of someone's life being a billion different ways and the desiring machines being ordered as they are. This arrangement seems to, at the, at the large scale, be a thing I can grab, but when I do, the partial objects aren't, aren't really there in the same way. Instead, they're, they're played as lack in this because they're not desiring machines. My, my desiring machines are here. They're doing what they're doing, but I can't make that representation fit. There's, there's a disconnection there, but it works and it works very nicely. Um, that's the play they're making here. On a more general level, the statistical transformation of molecular multiplicity into molar constellation is what organizes lack on a large scale. There is no society that does not arrange lack in its midst by variable means peculiar to it. This welding of desire to lack is precisely what gives desire collective and personal ends, goals and intentions, instead of desire taken in the real order of production, which behaves as molecular phenomenon devoid of goal or intention. The, the natural emergent behavior of desire works as it works. It doesn't give a shit. My, my desiring machines don't give a shit about picket fences or sex or attraction or man, woman, any of that. They're connecting partial objects. They don't even know what a conception of a person is. They're tiny. They're not there. But I do. I certainly know what those things are. And by going to those, the, the machines that should be there, ah, it's a problem because they're not. And lo and behold, lack. Their, their desire becomes fused quickly into this because it needs to fill and it needs to play within that. The... It is in relation to this new order, this, this whole, this global complete object of the happy couple, the picket fence, the, the sexy people on Instagram, the whole, um, um, that the partial objects of a molecular order appear as lack because they're not there. I mean, it's, they appear as lack because they're just not a thing. They, this is, again, a representation plays in this. And at large scales, this is how our desire as a society, our investments get played. Kind of my explanation of it. It's a really tough concept that I've been playing with a lot because I find it really interesting because it, it brings in a lot of stuff that's really important in general, you know, critical theory. We need, we need, how do we get manipulated? But it's not manipulated. How does society play with us? Well, it's lack. Lack kind of works in these things. And how does, how does lack play? How do we get manipulated by lack? How does desire get manipulated by lack? It's, it's not really manipulated, but instead it's produced and here's how it's produced and makes through these things. It's a tough, it's a tough one. I hope what I said made any semblance of sense though. Jesus. I, I start to think too, like, this is something to keep in mind as we go, but I, I would start to think that like as an index is created on that, right? on these revolutionary investments. I would think one of the things they're doing is they're working with, because lack is the first paralogism, right? I would think one of the things they're doing is they're, they're obviously changing how those paralogisms function. I would start to think that the kind of new earth they're talking about, um, the fourth socius, right? Whatever that will be, if it, if it ever, however that is, you know, putting that aside for a minute, I would start to think it is a problem of how the molar could function in this way, where instead of paralogistically, it could have functions syllogistically.
But obviously that's a different problem than explicitly what they're dealing with here. Because <laughs> obviously yeah. under these conditions, you have to deal with the paralogisms, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. But I would think part of the problem is, right, like how do you, what would it, what would it take for a deterritorialization to basically, I mean, it would basically change the, like, it would change the whole production of lack, potentially, potentially meaning that we wouldn't be dealing with it as such. Because like, this is where you kind of get the pre-conscious, right? The welding of desire to lack is precisely what gives desire collective personal ends goals or intentions, right? I mean, that to me, that sounds like the pre-conscious and later consciousness. I think so. I think it's playing towards that. It's, uh, again, the, the seeming lack that is produced when we give non-emergent representations that power, and capitalism does it pretty much all the time that's kind of the entire space of how capitalism works is with images that don't have that it's why we're married to them it's why we love them death is inside of them but they're not they're dead they're not uh, a living breathing desire they're they're dead and as such that sort of lack that that is uh, perceived inside of it and and sort of puts those things into it it's a really amazing thing because it starts to manipulate desire and as they say here, it's what gives desire collective and personal ends, goals, or intentions instead of desire taken in the order of its production. The desire properly made doesn't have any of that. But when I pre-consciously or, or, or you know, subjectively say, oh, I really want a Coke or I really want that person, it's that, that that's where we start talking about this investment, I think. I think the lack pressures the things connecting in their relations. Yes. Oh, yeah. That, that was sorry. You were answering yes. Yeah. 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 Sorry, man. But I mean, it fits with what you're saying, right? I mean, there's there's the connective aspect of already being related to coke, and then there's the conception that one lacks a coke, and their goal is to get that coke, right? Because this is kind of my point to, to Ash, right? So like, are we trying to fill in the lack? Maybe it's not that we're trying to fill in the lack so much as we find that the lack pressurizes um, the, the partial objects, the desire machines that, that in the first place enable the lack, right? And then consciously we start to think, just like Bruce was saying, well, I do want, how do I get the Coke? That's what I really want is the coke, right? Because at that point, you're just a step before the mother. Andrew says, this is where I need new clothes, relationships, job, prestige. Lack insists the desire has an exclusive goal. Lack, lack um, again, because we're talking about uh, types of desire. Um, the welding of desire to lack gives the desire collective personal ends, goals, and intentions. Um, that... Again, this is the post-subject. This isn't desire at its base level. You don't have a desire for new clothes. It doesn't know clothes. Uh, a desire just wants to connect. 
with things. Um, you give the secondary meaning. And then outside of you, when you have this sort of collective, oh, we, we as a group need to uh, invest in Bitcoin. We as a group need to buy new houses. We need to work for minimum wage. We need to blah, blah, blah. These are, this kind of exists at that point. So the use of desire here um, um, is, again, it's weird because we're talking about, again, two regimes. Desire is still flowing. It's still the same ultimate desire, but we're talking about different places within the gigantic mashup that is the um, molar and the molecular, I think. Is that fair, Jack? That last bit for me one more time. Oh, no, I'm here. Oh, yeah. Say, say that last bit for me one more time. Um, when they use the term at the end of this, this welding of desire to lack is precisely what gives desire collective and personal ends, goals, or intentions. Um, we're talking about ultimately the same desire. There is, think of desire as the uh, connective energy, the libido that is flowing through. At the very base, it starts flowing and it's flowing through its own desiring machines. Desiring machines are just two pieces of uh, two partial objects slammed together, and they just are doing this thing, this massive amounts. But desire at some point becomes a collective thing we do get to experience. We experience collective desires, social investments that we all seem to agree with. Now, why is that as a thing? Well, it's because desire at this point gets this, it's the same desire, it's just a little further in the process, gets welded to lack. And this is what gives desire the collective and personal ends, goals, or intentions. Um, but desire taken in the real order of its production, the actual production underneath, is always molecular and has no goal. Intention is just doing what it is doing. Post-subject is the shorthand I use for that. It's probably not right, but yeah. Yeah, I think what you're doing is you're putting your finger on the molar there, right? Like the kind of thing where we can go, like the, especially at the personal and collective level, right? It's, it sounds like part of the condition for the personal or the collective is going to be the molar. And that extends into, I think, how the paralogisms are getting used. Because, I mean, at some level, this is getting at the problem of, like, are, what should, must the personal and collective be put in terms of some, of a, like I say, a transcendent signifier, which is usually the phallus, right? That's right there in the first paralogism, which is why we can make fun of the Coke bottle the way we are. Oh, I lost it. Um, no, 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 I'm here. No, I lost Ash. I oh. think. <laughs> uh, so if there's a relationship between... The Coke bottle exists in relation with other things, right? These are the, These are other machines. Those relations are part of the connective synthesis, which is a series of ands, right? This is what constitutes their relations, I think. In doing that, right, the Coke bottle is just one piece of that, just like the liquid of the Coke is one piece of that, just like the mouth it's in relation to is one piece of that, and so on, right? But when the Coke bottle is elevated above that, where things start to be defined in terms of the Coke bottle, that's 
part of the risk there. That's when it becomes the, the phallus, the transcend signifier, because now the molecular is being taken in terms of something that's been um, basically taken out of it. And at the same time, at one and the same time, it becomes the exclusive perspective upon it. Yeah, so and, it's, and it's tough. It's, it's, I, I kind of want to pull back because just real quick, um, it's not so much that it's post-subject. We're not really talking about things that, like, it's, it's always tough because we're talking about all of it at once, and I'm trying to be using shorthand to kind of help bring to the idea. But um, the reality is on any BWO, molar and molecular things coexist on them, and they're generally closely placed together. Like, so there are... Um, the phrase I think is molecular design machines are in themselves the investment of large molar machines or of the configurations that design means form machines form according to the laws of large numbers. The, the thing that's like being added here, I'm just sorry to go back. I'm, I'm going to read a little bit of Holland here because I, I just want to make sure my phrasing is, is better. I don't want to fuck anyone and send anyone in the wrong direction in one sense. Molar investments are simply ones that happen to correspond to prevailing social norms and to thereby reinforce what DNG refer to as gregarity or herd instinct, whereas molecular investments depart from and thereby can subvert the norms. And if molecular investments do subvert norms, it's ultimately because they differ in form from molar investments. Molecular recording disjunctions are inclusive rather than exclusive, their machinic connections multiple and partial rather than global and specific. Their subject conjunction, conjunctions nomadic rather than sedimented, and so desire remains multivariable and polyvocal instead of succumbing to univocity and belief. And that's kind of the thing I think we're talking about here. The When we have desire that is collective with personal ends, goals, or whatever, we've hit the place of belief. We've hit the place of, of delusion. Um, and... Um, uh, it, 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 even as they phrase it. And I think that's what we're talking about here. I just want to make sure I get that right. Sorry, Jack. I didn't mean to interrupt and go down a weird path. No, that was actually, I mean, that was spot on. It's a really, this is where the tough stuff is. And if, again, if I had a great handle on this personally, I'd be writing books on it and I wouldn't be here probably. Actually, I probably would be. I think I'm doing this fucking reading the rest of my life. But still, um, yeah, it's... um. It's fascinating this way, I think. But it gets at, like, how do you get these kind of norms, right? There's something, I mean, this does kind of transcend it in that, right? Like, or like, you, we go back to values, right? You know, we keep hearing about a higher justice. That's exactly what we're talking about here, a higher justice, a transcendent justice. You know, this kind of justice that we're in lack of the kind of thing we wanted all along, right? The thing that the desires add up to and ended up actually intending to be, but that, you know, they didn't intend to be such things, right? Yeah, and lack itself is, I mean, this is... Uh... This is, we also start getting into Levi Strauss and we have to go back to the earlier parts of chapter three as we talk about how lack is produced within capital 
uh, I'm gonna maybe want to save that for the next reading sometime later this year. <laughs> yeah, because before that, we get to enjoy, was it 2.5, where they just go through straight how that paralogism happens. <laughs> yeah, and then and then also how lack is produced in a in not in an exchangeist way, but instead that it is ultimately about anti-production that allows us to have the excess taken over. It's why capital um, doesn't have the palace at Versailles. Like we don't look around, we don't have the palace at Versailles. Despite uh, in in theory, we should. I mean, Elon Musk is in theory, all these guys they have great grand homes, but the palace at Versailles was like holy shit. If you've never seen it, it's wild. And we don't have anything like that even in relation to where we're at. So why doesn't it produce that? Well, it's because that's not how we deal with excess under under capital. We do it through anti-production, and it's kind of core and base in the system and kind of forever there. I mean, it's, again, uh, to go back to Bataille and all of that stuff as we get through all of Chapter 3, I mean, it's, it's lack as it works. Um, uh, to quote... Um, uh, Holland, now what anti-production lack always precludes, as we shall see, is the direct appropriation and complete and immediate enjoyment of the fruits of production. What it institutes is a variety of regimes always based on deferral, on the separation of productive force from what it can produce or already has, on the accumulation of reserves, the constitution of maintenance of extensive social organization, and sometimes Oedipal guilt in the nuclear family, on thoroughgoing self-denial an ascetic demand. Anti-production as the controlled expenditure of excess is thus for schizoanalysis coterminous with the process of organizing social relations in systems of debt of various kinds. The, the asceticism is uh, the word here I think that strikes me. Um, in the US, if you, if you know, everyone knows, Roe v. Wade's gonna be overturned. We learned about this. And I was having an angry debate with someone who like, was going through all the hypocrisies of the pro-life uh, people and all of that. And um, my point is the same, and it's pretty much this one, that they, they don't, they literally want suffering. The, the, the nature of the ascetic ideal, which is inherent especially to capital, but comes out of a decidedly Western version of it, um, is about how suffering is positive. And that self-denial of pleasure, they, they just want that. And that guilt and that underlying thing I think we're seeing uh, rear its head in a way that um, we rarely have in the last 20 years. And I think we need to take notice and believe them for where they're at, which is they really just don't want pleasure. Uh, they want the excess to be very controlled. They want to have it set and they want debt to be totalized. They want death to be everywhere. This is, this is the head of capitalism. Well, that's part of the thing, right? I mean, part of the reason you, like the hypocrisy in that, you know, we're often tempted to call these things out, but that's, you know, it doesn't exactly get you far. Like, you mm -hmm. can win the rational argument, right? And, and good for you. Sometimes that is important. Um, but it's, to me, it really does go back to the Foucault-Chomsky debate. Is like, it's not about establishing a new higher justice it's more about getting at the justice that's there and all the things that are co-constitutive 
and I think kind of working with how that can be changed because like there was something in your quote that made me start that got my gears turning but I mean that is part of what the paranoia is doing right is it's kind of It it totalizes, it totalizes, and therefore it that that process of totalization creates whole bodies, creates representations, which basically have lack of anti-production embedded in them. It's the process of paranoia creates anti-production by nature. And it's it's this weird thing where it's in some ways, right, it's about I mean one way to say it is it's about controlling change, but that's not exactly right. But it has that kind of, like, it appears to us that way, I think. I, I think appears is fine. Yeah, I'll go with that. I mean, that's the weird thing about it, right? Capital does a lot of work changing things. It just doesn't. <laughs> it's just that the way the change functions is repressive, right? <laughs> well, it's, it's the marriage of power and economy. Yeah. Uh, so again, could go back to the paralogisms, which uh, we did. Uh, we have multiple recordings discussing them, but um, if you want to go back, you can re-listen to us go through all of those. Um, this is how lack is produced through the paralogisms, and this is why they utilize Oedipus, I think, so deftly. Uh, the nature of how Oedipus produces lack, or 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 specifically, uh, creates a false signified. Um, so that way we actually, um, desire sort of gets swelled underneath or repressed is a, is an incredibly genius little stroke of functionary, I think. And it, it made sense too, right? Because I mean, that's part of what, like, I mean, we've been, we've been making fun of the whole Coke thing, but you know, I mean, that is part of the thing that makes Oedipus so effective in its repression, right? that aspect of the thing that you actually want, right? Mm -hmm. Versus the, trying to kill the thing that's keeping you from it that you nevertheless find yourself needing. You know, that establishment of those parts, you know, it's, it's definitely challenging to, to, to mitigate that problem. Because you got to think, if Oedipus had known that he was killing his father in that story, he probably wouldn't have been able to do it, right? <laughs> he just does it because he's angry. Well, it's also just a story. Well, that's true, too. <laughs> um, please, questions, comments. There's a lot here. That's, uh, there's so much here, Jesus Christ. I'm going to leave it awkward for a moment because uh, if I have to read another paragraph, we're here for another 20 minutes. It's a short paragraph, so I'm happy to do it. But we do get into Nietzsche, 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 Nietzsche for a little bit, which is great. All right.
to continue a little bit into our paragraph we just read. I'm just going to do that because it helps uh, to continue this one. Um, this welding of desire to lack is precisely what gives desire collective and personal ends, goals, or intentions, instead of desire taken in the real order of its production, which behaves as a molecular phenomenon devoid of any goal or intention. Nor must it be thought that the statistical accumulation results from chance, or that it is a random result. This accumulation is, on the contrary, the fruit of a selection exerting its force on the elements of chance. When Nietzsche says that the selection is most often exerted in favor of the large number, he inaugurates a fundamental intuition that will inspire modern thought, for what he means is that the large numbers or the large aggregates do not exist prior to a selective pressure that might elicit singular lines from them, but that, quite on the contrary, these large numbers and aggregates are born of this selective pressure that crushes, eliminates, or regularizes the singularities. Selection does not presuppose a primary gregariousness. Gregariousness presupposes the selection and is born of it. Culture, as a selective process of marking or inscription, invents large numbers in whose favor it is exerted. That is why statistics is not functional, but structural, and concerns chains of phenomena that selection has already placed in a state of partial dependence, the Markov chains. This can even be seen in the genetic code. In other terms, forms of gregariousness are never indifferent. They refer back to the qualified forms they produce them by creative selection. The order is not gregariousness to selection, but on the contrary. Molecular multiplicity creates forms of selection performing the selection, creates molar or gregarious aggregates that result from this selection. Ah... <sighs> Um, the gregarious aggregates as they exist, uh, just to say very cleanly, um, it is not that the social chooses the selection. It is not that at large we want these things and therefore that's what's done. This is the backwards way. Instead, it is that the molecular multiplicity which is the mass, not a single, the mass of desiring machines, the multiplicity that is all desiring machines at a molecular level. This forms, of, this creates forms of selection, performing the selection. The process of selection needs to be created. Well, how does it do that? Well, it does it by performing the selection. Uh, there's kind of an insistence upon itself that presupposes the gregariousness at its point. The molar or gregarious aggregates come from this and result from this selective process. It is ultimately all from the multiplicity on the way up. And we are talking about the gregarious that is a result of this, not determinant of this. Not determinant, not determining this. Yes, I said that backwards, sorry. Um, it's a really great set of lines. Uh, the line from Nietzsche, uh, selection is most often exerted in favor of the large number. Um, he doesn't mean that the large number chooses the thing, the selection. What he means is it's most often exerted in that favor. He means is that the large numbers, the aggregate, don't exist prior to selective pressure that might elicit singular lines. But actually, 
Those large numbers and aggregates are born of the selective pressure that crushes, eliminates, and regularizes singularities. Selection does not presuppose a primary gregariousness. Your selection happens. It's just the way it is. It doesn't have to have a gregariousness. But gregariousness presupposes the selection and is born of it. Culture, as a selective process of marking or inscription, events, invents the large number in whose favor it is exerted. Culture is the representation that conditions the selection to head in the direction of the gregarious. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's it. Oof. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, so differently, it's the problem of like, why is something popular? And the, usually the answer is, well, because it's popular, right? And I think that's more or less what they're fighting against, like you're saying, Brutz. Right? Especially if, like, well, it's popular because of the cultural aspect. Well, it can't just be the cultural aspect as though the culture is just some simply unconditioned, right? Because I think what they're, and this kind of expands on what I was talking about with pressure. Um, right? That aspect of the paranoiac, I think, that pressures production also conditions what is going to be, um, you know, what's going to become transcendent, right? Whether it's justice or, you know, the phallus or the Coke bottle. Right, so the popularity, another way to say it is popularity doesn't choose what's popular, right? Instead, and I really like the way they laid this out, the molecular multiplicity implies that forms of selection performing the selection implies molar gregarious aggregates that result from the selection right so you have the you have the connective synthesis and then you've got this aspect of selection which i think is leaning in toward right how do you get the phallus in that you know what's going to be the thing in, in Guattari's machine and structure it's the thing that does the differentiation that said, right, so what does the selection leads into the molar gregarious aggregates that result from the selection? Yeah, it conditions its own selection, lucky thing. All right, it's just getting at the point that this is really just tautological. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, Ash is asking again what they mean by transformation. Okay. Um, where is it used in here? It's, it's the process we just went through, right? How does the molecular, um, how does that thing that's going to re basically represent the molecular, how does that get, how does that happen? And that's what that last sentence is really laying out is it doesn't happen because of um, the gregarious, because selection presupposes the gregarious. It happens because the connective synthesis happens. There's something that performs a selection, or rather there are forms of selection performing the selection. And that leads into that which is going to represent that, um, that uh, connective synthesis. Let's see. Uh, section over your head. Well, Mr. Wolf, uh, come back anytime. We'd love to have you. 
and we're going to be doing uh, more readings and I'm going to be doing kind of an open thing once a week trying to so just sit and talk these things through because I'm still making my way through it in my own understanding as well. Um, Ash, uh, the perception of popularity is emergent and popularity is emergent from the perception. Um, it, it's less direct. Think less about the perception of popularity. Um, think about actually how culture is made, uh, why you eat the food you eat, why the decisions to say you like the food you do. If you've ever been to Sweden, they all eat licorice. It's disgusting. It's one of the, I fucking hate it. I don't eat licorice. Um, I like violet candy, which is disgusting also, by the way, uh, to a lot of people. Did these, why do I desire these things? Why do I want these things? Why are these things set up in large numbers? Why is this culture set up in front of me? Well, the common way people have thought about it is this is the culture you want to do things like us. So you, you get in line, your desires get in line. It's like, eh, eh, no, not, not so much. It's, it's, there's a, there's a lot of these desiring machines and desires being produced. And sure, at some point the desire may get transformed and set up, but it's, it's not so much that, oh, I want to fit in or I want to be part of society or a culture. It's that we have this like weird selective process, which is culture, which marks and inscribes things. It invents the large number in whose favor it is exerted. There, there is a large number that we are exerting towards. Um, I don't uh, eat, uh, I don't know, majority of the world is in Asia. I didn't grow up eating Asian food. That's the law of large numbers purely would just determine that, oh, well, everyone should be. Well, no, actually, we're talking about pockets of people and that every social determination is unique inside of a person and everything they go through as an organism. So uh, so not so much. So how, how do my desires get manipulated? Well, culture becomes the selective process of marking a description, which invents the large numbers in whose favor it is exerted. The gregariousness is exerted in that direction. This is why statistics is not functional but structural. Concerns chains of phenomena, selection has already placed in a state of partial dependence. By, by even going down that road, we've already claimed these things are partially dependent. We've already said these things. We've, we've created the conditions under which these things have been pulled out. Um, that element can be seen in everything. They use the example of genetic code, which we could have a long uh, discussion about I'll kind of avoid because it's it's complicated um, to say another way and it's how they end it forms of gregariousness uh, the large number of things that we do are never indifferent they refer back to the qualified forms that produce them by creative selection the order is not the th we do the thing at large and the thing at large that everyone likes is what I choose but on the contrary we have emergent molecular multiplicity that then produces forms of selection that perform the selection by having a form of selection that performs the selection. How do we have a form of selection? Culture. Culture is the form of selection, conditions what we choose, and therefore from there it is then produced as molar and gregarious aggregates that result from that selection. Why do you choose what you choose? You choose it because of the culture and representation. The representation conditions selection. Desire machines don't give a shit, but they get pushed into this selection process. And lo and behold, isn't it kind of amazing that they tend to go in the direction of the large-scale culture that they've been pushed into? It's a tautological circle that's chasing itself, that they're saying start from the, start from the bottom, start from the molecular. That's the difference between sort of the general 
uh, hey, no, everyone just has lack. It's, it's primordial. It's part of just who we are and existence. There you go. It's like, well, that's no, there's other things. Desires not manipulate. Let's talk about a purity of desire and a productive, emergent, positive way of looking at the world, which is very much to lose his way. Um, and not one that starts with negative and everything's constantly breaking down. If it's positive, things are produced. And if they're produced, they're conditioned. If they're conditioned, that's how we get the laws of large numbers that happen to always be in line. It's why I like burgers with lots of cheese and bacon. Why I want one all the time. It's why I want Pizza Hut Thin Crust Pepperoni Lover's Pizza. Why? That's a, it's a garbage food. It's good, though. I love it, I guess. Um, why do people like what they like? Why do people want what they want? They're conditioned by the fact that they have to be conditioned. We don't just make cultural gregarious choices. That's not the emergent reality. The emergent reality is is our bodies and our, our organism is just would be just doing whatever desire machines are connecting to, flitting from one thing to another until we die. We're, we're organized socially. Well, how do we make those determinations? It's not that the laws at the top is the conditions us. Uh, it's that actually we have these representations that are conditioning the emergent desire into fitting into them. And the result, the resultant happens to be molar or gregarious aggregate. Um, if we didn't have culture, for example, um, um, and I don't mean in an American way. America has American culture, which is even more insidious and terrifying. But if we didn't have culture in general, what food would you choose to eat? You'd Whatever. But here we do. We have these things that are necessarily conditioning the choice and making the choice a real thing in a selection. I don't know if that makes sense. I'm going to stop repeating myself at this point. Drew, Ash, Jack, Jan Claire, please tell me in general if I'm being stupid and just saying a thing over and over. It's tough. It's, this, is how I, this is how I've been getting it. It's a lot to sort of take because it's a switch from the general idea of, um, well, we set the tone as a society and people fall in line. It's like, ah, it's sort of, but it's more complicated than that. And, and there's more happening underneath the surface. Right, because we've got to deal with the problem of like, how do you get the... The whole idea of there being a line, right? How do you even get the line in the first place, mm -hmm. right? It can't just pre-exist everything. That would, you know, that's just, I mean, you know, that's a bit lazy, right? It's got to happen somehow. So like here, right? Like how do you get, for instance, how do you get the phallus, right? There's a whole, there's a lot of things going on, but at a basic level, right? the kind of cult, and they're calling it culture here at some level, right? But the selective process, I think is really interesting here, right? Because there's pressure at the paranoiac level, I think, that influences production, just like the schizophrenic does, right? Miraculation and um, re repulsion would be the paranoiac here. But I think that's a large, it, one uh, by and large, got something to do with pressure. So when they say, right, selection does not, well, okay, back up a bit. For what he means is that, he being Nietzsche, what he means is that the large numbers or the large aggregates did not exist prior to selective pressure, which they'll call 
and though they'll put air quotes around it, culture, that might elicit singular lines from them. But that quite on the contrary, these large numbers and aggregates are born of the selective pressure that crushes, eliminates, or regularizes the singularities, right? Mm -hmm. So the way the singularities are interacting with each other in that, it doesn't do that presupposing um, the product. This is why I think he's associating it with chance. Because when we deal with probability, right, we're kind of working with established outcomes. I think even in mathematics, it's kind of how they they treat it, right? What are the possible outcomes versus the total number of um, uh, likely outcomes or something like that? And I think that's more or less what they're dealing with, right? Is like, we want to look for the outcomes and probability but chance isn't working based on the outcomes as though they must be, right? Chance instead would enable any kind of outcome in the first place. Drew says, this is really based on gregariousness, which I thought was imminent. Herd instinct is something I heard as innate for a long time. I hope I understand it better now. It is, the, the use of herd instinct is a really interesting thing. Instinct, I think, in general, is a really odd thing that they... Institute in ways I don't expect, I think, throughout a great deal of it. Um, but specifically in this case, I think it's really fair to say that we're talking about herd instinct in terms of um, less a uh, directly imminent, I'm doing what the group is doing, but a I want X, Y, or Z and I'm reacting to external stimuli. Why am I doing Why is my desire reacting in this way? Why does my desire want that thing and how do I do it? This process of how desire comes to desire what the group wants and how desire comes to match that is what they're talking about. And so I think it matches conceptually herd instinct, but the use of herd instinct does make it seem like it is more imminent than anything else. I, I'm with you on that. It's an interesting phrasing. Yeah. It's not something that's innate to people on that. It's something that itself is contingent, right? So like the imminence of it, I think, is just that of the molar itself, right? But yep. what that does is it enables something transcendent, right? And that's going to be the phallus, whatever whatever thing is uh, representing it. Ash says, wouldn't the total number of outcomes not be knowable under any circumstances without a totalized conception of pre-existing possibilities? That's similar to the problem of why would, how can the thing that's popular pre-exist popularity, right? So like when they're comparing chance and probability or like where they say, maybe this is a clearer sentence, that is why statistics is not functional but structural. So that, I think that's largely the point, right? The singularities aren't being taken for what they're doing in their function. They're being taken for what they, um, what they kind of end up enabling. So like, you know, the, the easy way to say it is the process is confused with the product. Go ahead, Brits. No, I was just going to say that's a great way to put it. It's a really unique thing for sure. Um, but I think that phrasing is good. I like that too, because it's true. Like stats doesn't tell you why things are doing what they're doing or what they're doing. It just tells you what you can expect to find. <laughs> and that's what, that's why we use them. Mm -hmm. 
So we don't have to deal with um, chance as such. So we can deal with probability. Yeah. And again, to go back to what Jack said, which is, I think, spot on, it's um, how do we know what's popular before popularity can exist? Like, like how does how does popularity determine itself ultimately, which becomes sort of a chase? And it's, well, we have these things and these elements that kind of condition desire. Desire can't know what's popular. Desire doesn't give a shit. But how do it, how does it get conditioned? How does it get played with? How does it get uh, utilized through the paralogisms to play towards this? Yeah, and to your earlier point, right? Like, in terms of this first thesis, every investment is social in any case bears upon a socio-historical field, right? So at that level, right, the, the whole social, to put it in a different sense, right, what are the investments that contribute to that which will be, uh, that, that which will become transcendent, right, the lines of selection? Yeah, it's an interesting setup. It's a line um, they use earlier, which is uh, all resignations are justified in advance. There's a, it's not so much that desires about needs. It's, it's not about any of these things. Lack doesn't play into it. It's, it's about how desiring production sort of has these elements uh, in, interjected and played into it in order to sort of be moved. It's, it is very much descriptive or proscriptive. A lot of people believe that things are proscriptive. Um, a, a man, the conception of that as an example, what is a man, what is a woman? These things are proscriptive. Well, they're more descriptive, but if we take them proscriptively, that shifts things. And representation does that fun game. And when you start talking about cultural, and you start talking about how desire is ultimately conditioned because it's making its selections based on the very condition of the culture, it's a... Uh, not a shock that it tends towards what the culture wants. Right, because at that level, it's about the production of that, how that cultural aspect is itself productive through selection, mm -hmm. which enables that thing that's going to be called popular, right? Yep. It's not popular to begin with, it's just this is how it becomes what we call popular. This has been good too, because now I going back to our previous conversation, but I see why you're focusing on the social now. Mm -hmm. Going back to the first thesis. Uh, for anyone who didn't, Jack, Jack and I were late because we were having a half hour long discussion about one of the thing. This what, what, he, what he's about to talk about, where it's my focus on the social and how uh, how there's actually production maybe happening within it. And don't this is not AO. This is my weird ideas. Don't listen to me. Ignore me now. This is not helping with your AO understanding at all. I just have weird ideas and wanted to talk about stuff. So, um, but it's, I do think it's, a, it's okay. No, no, please. But to preface that, it's a big deal too because, right? Like we just came off the whole the psychoanalysis and like the problem of putting the social in terms of the familial versus the familial relying on the social, right? Yep. Very much. 
We should continue that though. We should. Um, it'd be fun to kind of workshop some of these ideas and see what we can make out of them. I I, I think there's a lot of. It's again, and and as we get to the end of this, and I wonder if anyone else would be the same. I've it's my fifth time through the book. It's my second time through with the group. Well, technically my third time because I've been I read it again, kind of as we've been doing this. Um, uh, so it's like two simultaneous readings, I guess I've been doing, which is like doesn't make sense, I guess. Um, but you know, where do they leave off? Where does ATP pick up? Where does some of their other work pick up? And it's in to me, it's in how social production operates. I think there's some interesting shit that they start getting into here, and they have some other bits, but they tend to focus on the on the molecular. The 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 socialist thing is what fascinates me. I think the most. Um, Desire machines, I get, and I think there's a there's a thing that is is un I don't want to say unchangeable there, but like that's I get that, and I don't want to talk about that. I get it. It's 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 the productive elements. These things are going, but I keep going back to that. the The core idea of logic of sense is counteractualization. That is the revolutionary potential of anyone to actually change how meaning operates, which is the power we have. We cannot move bodies. We cannot control things. It is not a fate versus non-fate. It isn't even a splitting of the two. It's that by shifting meaning, we immediately, that is the place where we have power, where we actually can change how things are organized in the future. Like the ability for me to place a new machine to create that line of escape, that's through counteractualization. And there's a lot of power in that. And putting it in terms of AI, right? One thing that's a consistent focus we're seeing is that whether we're going to call it schizophrenic, deterritorizing, decoding, uh, or the revolutionary versus reactionary potential of such things, which probably moves the conversation a little bit forward on that on that term, right? Because mm -hmm. I've kind of put the horse before my own cart. Because I, I think a lot of the decoding and deterritorialization that we're seeing in the socius, especially with capital versus the BWO, you know, it made sense to me why they're going to focus on that more as they go, because it does come into, I think, a lot of question of how this, right? Why does the why does capital's facilitation of deterritorialization reinforce repression? as opposed to the BWO um, enabling an escape, mm. right? To put it in kind of terms of question, I think that's one of the big things we've got to focus on. Yeah, I, I, I agree. It's, it's, there are always holes, like it, the edge of everything, the edge of the socialist, there's, it's not non-permeable. We just can't escape not under our own weight or powers. We, we have to find the pieces that we can lay in order for the rocket ship to be built. But once it's built, others can do the same. The holes exist. It's waiting for us to go through them. We just need to figure out how to build the app, the arrangement that enables it most, uh, that enables it to continue on that. Um, and not to go back to Christian versions of things, but I always love linking back, um, the story of Christ where he had everyone with fish and bread. It, it wasn't that he sat there and he miraculously gave everyone fish and bread. It's that he realized, like most people do, that there is enough for everyone. 
if everyone were to just distribute it. And all he needed to do was be the first. And he got one person to do it, and then multiple others, and that that knock-on effect became a, holy shit, we can actually just feed each other, we don't have to deal with this bullshit that we're in. And that moment is, uh, to me, a great example of this. Yep. I've always appreciated uh, that, that story from a British perspective, because I believe that's the origin of fish and chips. That's a fucking terrible joke. <laughs> that's a fucking terrible joke, and I'm going to end this. I'm, I'm, it's so bad that I'm ending the talk, and that's it. And I'm going to make sure that I, I, I repeat it, and I'm going to edit it so that way the joke plays six times in a row on this podcast. Just, it's going to end. I'm going to turn a tech, that joke into a techno song so that way you feel embarrassed forever that you told it. Oh, good Lord. Oh, that's so I'm so, so proud of that, too. I came up with it just now when you were... I, you, really? You say that that wasn't a labor of a lot of thought? I'm shocked. It felt so <laughs> so put together and thought through. And, well, and really, I, you know, it, it just feels like someone who's a professional writer spent months aching over every bit of that word and not just throwing the garbage together at the last second. Well done. Well done. Well done. Yeah. You can call me Long John Silver because that joke. Fucking Christ. Oh my God. <laughs> We're going to end it here. We're ending it here. Thank all of you very much for joining us on this lovely time. We will continue next week. Um, we are at the mid paragraph next week of 343. I'm going to make a little mark and a comment. Come on, Brooks. Where's the comment button in my stupid PDF? Uh, add note. We are going to uh, hear on. The 17th. Wow. Nice. We're burning through this. Good shit. Not bad. Huh. Um, you know, I start something that's paragraph. Don't, don't start. Don't give me another goddamn joke. Oh, no. I will kick you from the, the stars of my jokes, right? Joke. <laughs> I'm going to kick you from the goddamn server. God damn it. Oh, I don't, I can't handle, I can't handle anymore. Um, uh, yeah, they don't get thank all of you. Them, <laughs> Just get um, worse. I mean, that presumes there's a good. This is the, the the fun part of terrible as a representation is it naturally is just awful. Um, well, that's the difference between Sisyphus and me. Sisyphus can at least go uphill. Me, I just keep going downhill. It, this is true. This is so fucking true. All right, that's it. I'm out of here. Thank all of you. Um, for joining, we will continue next week. Don't hesitate to write continuing questions in the anti-Oedipus chat. Uh, we are here. I'm going to be probably into this week doing a two-hour sort of sit-down. Be watching for that in the events. Thank you so much.